The system depends on the prison label, not prison time. Once a person is labeled a felon, he or she is ushered into a parallel universe in which discrimination, stigma, and exclusion are perfectly legal, and privileges of citizenship such as voting and jury service are off-limits. Your second-class citizenship begins the moment you're branded a felon. It is a badge of inferiority, the felony record, that relegates people for their entire lives to second-class status. There is little hope for escape. Barred from public housing by laws, discriminated against by private landlords, ineligible for food stamps, forced to check the box indicating a felony conviction on employment applications for nearly every job, and denied licenses for a wide range of professions, people whose only crime is drug addiction or possession of small amounts of drugs for recreational use find themselves locked out of mainstream society and the economy permanently. Michelle Alexander, The New Jim Crow. Welcome, this is the Dr. Junkie Show, and I'm Ben Boyce, convicted criminal, addicted person, drug user, and college professor. Today I want to share a story. Actually, it's a couple of stories, and they begin all the way back when I got out of prison for the last time, in 2005. Before I went in, I was working on a bachelor's degree, but when I was shooting cocaine and heroin all the time between 2003 and 2005, school got pretty hard. Addiction in a culture of prohibition is a full-time job for poor people. Don't forget, the drugs we use are marked up by upwards of almost a million percent sometimes. But when I got out, I only spent a year or so shooting dope again. That's the only thing prison actually prepared me for. But after that, I got on methadone, and suddenly I had all sorts of free time and energy. I wanted to get my law degree, and as awful as I think the idea sounds now, I wanted to be a lawyer. I mean, who better to help people in trouble than someone who's been there, right? So I signed up, and amazingly, I managed to get the financial assistance I needed to make college happen. My counselor talked me through the prerequisites for law school, and I got to work. Abnormal psychology, introduction to criminal justice, historic decisions of the Supreme Court, I loved them all. It's funny, I've said it before on this show, the process of learning is pretty badass as a drug. I think it comes down to the dopamine that's released during learning, the want-driven thrill of the hunt that choreographs its release. At least that's my experience. Freud called this swapping of one vice for another sublimation. He didn't invent this idea, but he added a lot to the way we understand it. As a rough example, when I notice an urge nowadays to shoot cocaine, when it pops into my conscious thoughts, I might instead hop on a bicycle and hit a downhill course, or maybe head to the go-kart track, or to the mountains with an ATV. All of these activities are a bit less dangerous than shooting up cocaine purchased on the streets, so I sublimate my urge and choose a safer yet still fulfilling option. That's what sublimation is. Learning stuff is like sublimated opioids for me, and I leaned on that hard throughout my early days of abstinence from heroin and cocaine after years of shooting up almost daily when I wasn't in prison. Without books and classes, I might not have made it. A few semesters passed and it was time to declare an official major. By then, as all undergraduates do, I'd noticed a few teachers I connected with much more than all the others. So I asked one of them for their advice. Should I declare pre-law or criminal justice? He waited until after one of his classes to motion me aside as everyone else was leaving. He said, you got a minute? Once they were gone, he shut the door and said, I got your email. 
I wasn't sure how to respond. But if you're still on parole like you wrote about in your paper earlier this semester, do you mind if I ask what for? He sat down as I dove in and explained that there was far too much to list, but in short, a half dozen felonies and an egg carton full of misdemeanors, and parole was still three years out. He leaned back, and I remember the chair creaking like it already knew what he was about to say. And then he sort of whispered, You shouldn't bother going to law school. You won't be allowed to practice anywhere. We talked for a few more minutes, and then I headed over to the registrar's office and declared my area of study. Liberal arts, whatever that meant. Join me in an experiment before we dive into the heart of this episode. Think of someone you're allowed to dislike, or even hate. Someone who you won't get in trouble if you discriminate against. Don't fall prey to that automatic answer that tells all of us, not me, I don't hate anyone. You live in a culture, and that means you know about people that you're allowed to treat like crap. If the word hate bothers you, you probably just haven't thought through what hate really looks like. More on that in a minute. Now there probably aren't a lot of people on this list, not anymore anyway, and that actually might be what popped into your mind when I asked you the question. You may have thought about one of the many identities that at one point in our country's history we were allowed to proudly discriminate against, but not anymore. Women weren't allowed to vote, black folks were enslaved, gay people weren't allowed to get married, and all of these policies, along with the many more that those of us alive today look back on and cringe, were official and celebrated. They were codified into law. They were propped up with religious dogma. They were incentivized by those with wealth and political power. In a word, they were hegemonic. Regular people actually believed all of that stuff should be the way that it was. The slavery, the misogyny, all of it. Because hegemonic systems work by convincing people they should support ideas, laws, or theories which ultimately lead to their oppression or domination. And even though those laws felt right to those folks, we today can feel safe saying that they were in fact hatred, given the pain and oppression they caused and the beliefs that they were rooted in. Otherwise, good people often do things that reveal a hatred for others, not just in the past, but right now. And if those people in the past felt like they were doing the right thing, even as they participated in hate-fueled events like lynchings, then we would be idiots to not expect we, too, are probably supporting terrible stuff under a heartfelt belief that we're doing the right thing. It isn't hard for any of us to conjure up an example of a religious person driven to commit some heinous act under what they believe to be the divine command of God. In the United States, we can't go a week sometimes without yet another mass shooting. And it isn't unusual for the shooters to be compelled by a heartfelt belief that they're doing the right thing. Maybe that was your example, the mass shooter who walks into a public place and starts murdering strangers. That is indeed a group we're allowed to dislike, so much so in fact that we're doing ourselves a huge disservice culturally by failing to examine every one of their lives with a fine-tooth comb. The more we brush them under the rug and act like they're one-offs, the more we make sure that this sort of unnecessary death will continue. I live in the Denver area, so this tangent probably makes sense. We've been hit pretty hard with this mass shooter outbreak. But my point is that humans are always down to hate. It's just that cultures restrict at different times who we're allowed to hate. So back to the question, can you think of somebody you can hate without getting into trouble? Are mass shooters one? How about people who hurt innocent kids? How about dirty cops who send innocent people to jail? You could probably get away with hating them without catching too much flack from those around you. Are you getting the hang of this yet? How about drug users? Did you have to think twice about that one? 
Maybe we should stop and unpack what is meant by hate before going any further. The reason we use the term homophobic to describe somebody who endorses laws aimed at restricting the rights of members of the LGBTQIA community or who describes love that doesn't align with their standards as sin, it isn't because anyone thinks these folks are running scared from LGBTQIA people. To say you want a group of people to be restricted from doing X, Y, or Z is to say that you are afraid that they might be able to do X, Y, or Z. But fear alone leaves us huddled up in corners. It's disempowering. Hate is much more empowering than fear. So phobias often present as outcries against the group one has a bias against. That's why it's different to call me as a white man a cracker than it is to use racial slurs against groups that are statistically and historically oppressed in this country. Power is always working, and if you're ignoring it, you're performing it. Phobic behaviors are performances of hate. If you choose not to hire someone solely because they practice Islam, you're practicing hate rooted in your fear that Muslims might someday be treated as equals to whatever group you choose to hire instead. And that's why, at least officially, US culture frowns on refusing to hire someone because of their religion or lack thereof. In this case, we can say the business owner who says no to the Muslim based solely on their religion is practicing a form of hate because their nasty beliefs are performed in a way that has real-world consequences. But again, we do this with a lot of groups, and to be fair, many restrictions based on someone's past actions are warranted and even necessary. If someone has shown themselves unsafe to be around children, then we ought to prevent that person from hurting children. That's a pretty easy conclusion to reach. But where's the line between those who we should feel comfortable restricting and those who will later feel like monsters for restricting? I mean, presumably, many of the men who originally restricted the rights of women to vote would have felt differently had they grown up with a different set of values presented to them as normal. So how do we make sure we aren't playing along with a similar cultural norm which hasn't yet washed out? How do we make sure we're not being monsters without realizing it? I think my example hit on an easy-to-spot difference between hate-fueled policies intended to oppress and love-fueled policies intended to protect. It's in the likelihood that someone will be hurt if we don't restrict the action or the person in question. Not all cases of restrictions based on one's past behavior are examples of hate. There are things like crimes against children which prohibit employment and child services. There are things like torture and assault that make us shiver, and we probably feel okay about refusing people jobs in patient care or in therapy based on those convictions. There are people like John Hinckley Jr., who shot President Reagan in the midst of a psychotic episode of sorts, and until those folks are treated and deemed safe, it's not hateful to offer them secure treatment aimed at protecting everyone. Cultures don't work without restrictions, and as someone who has lost the illusion of free will, I realize that the only way we can really choose who to restrict and who to let be is to examine what we know about people. We have to look at their pasts. And then there's drug users, who we restrict outright from all sorts of jobs, whether they have a criminal record or not. And don't forget that all convicted felons, from mass murderers to the guy who stole a stereo when he was 16, are permanently excluded from many constitutional rights, including the entire Second Amendment and depending on where you live, the right to vote. We feel comfortable refusing them access to power, not to mention spaces that everyone else is allowed to use. But again, it's only hate if it's unwarranted. And as most of us know, there's no good reason related to safety for refusing someone employment, or in the case of Joe Biden's cabinet, refusing them a political position for using marijuana sometime in the distant past. 
I mean, if he had done the same thing because these people had eaten corn syrup or gambled at a legal casino or had sex, I can't imagine a world where the pushback wouldn't have been extreme. You can't fire people for stuff like that, and you shouldn't be able to fire people for stuff like that. But you can dump people for smoking a joint, even if it's been days or even years since they used. And what's wild is he didn't even fire them for smoking pot. He fired them for telling the truth about it. That's the American way. We seem not to really care as a culture. I mean, we're decades into what can only be described as the P-test industrial complex. Every probation or parole department across the country, along with prisons, rehabs, high schools, sports teams, they're dumping cash into an industry meant to allow us all to regulate the biology of others. If you think that the high school quarterback who takes MDMA on Thursday will somehow endanger your safety as a fan on Friday just because he took the drug, then it isn't hatred to kick him off the team for using. But if it's just because you don't like those people, well, I think history has been pretty consistent in how it treats those who endorse such qualifications for hate. They're the bad guys. Drug users and dealers are one of the few groups seen as social pariahs, but not because they pose a safety threat to the rest of us, or even to themselves, and not because a few assholes will always hate any group, but because the entire system endorses cultural hatred in this case, many of us just play along or look the other way. Imagine if someone hired you today because you were not black, or because you were not a trans person, or because you were not a Muslim. You should feel obligated to tell them to shove their job where the sun don't shine, and you should report them to the proper authorities regarding workplace standards. But if you just look the other way and take the job, you're part of the problem. And if you take a drug test to get a job that someone else can't get because they smoke pot a few times a week, you're also part of the problem. It's the first step in the train of tough love, that naturalized process by which families and friends of addicted people and drug users cut them off and kick them out at times in life when they need them the most. Like all things in the United States that are yucky and need a lot of work, we don't talk about it. We completely ignore it, or we actively participate. Ending the war on drugs is going to take a lot of talking about things we don't want to talk about. We're going to have to start speaking up. But I said today was about me, so back to my story. The email subject line was background check. Please complete within 24 hours of receipt. The return address was someone.someone at cdoc.gov. The email came through on a Friday, the week after classes at the college where I teach had ended. The following Monday was Memorial Day, so it seemed odd that the email came with a time limit. And given the weird return email address, I was actually a little surprised it didn't get dumped into my spam folder. If I didn't know any better, I would think they were trying to fail me by default. This was form number four. The other three had come over the course of the last six months, one every six weeks or so, and they all requested details of the crimes I had committed, the sentences I had received, the drugs I had used, the places I had lived, the jobs I had held, and even every crime, misdemeanor to felony, I had ever been charged with. Anyone who has gone through the process of a criminal case knows how common plea agreements are. More than 95% of all criminal charges issued in the United States end without a jury trial because prosecutors have the discretion to drop tons of charges in exchange for a guilty plea to just a few. And suspects have little choice but to jump at those offers because going up against the state in court is often a lost cause. Chandra Bazelko, Kevin Ott, Morgan Godvin, Brandon Stickney, Chris Trigg, I've talked to and about plenty of people on this podcast who tell the same story of the state pressuring them to take a plea deal and punishing them when they said no. 
The point is that no one who's been through what I've been through could tell you all of the charges they've received over the years. They aren't recorded on any background check I could do, since most of them were dropped in plea deals I took more than 20 years ago, before my local precinct even had computerized files. I never even heard back from the first three forms I had already filled out, yet here was another background check form, this one with a 24-hour time limit. Luckily, I had kept the last document I put together to explain why there were probably missing charges here and there on my description, which was ultimately a full two pages in addition to the two lines they offered on the application. And my description included eight felony convictions, a dozen misdemeanors, and a handful of driving charges, along with my phone number in case they had any questions. And I added a description about why I really couldn't do any better than that, but that I was willing to talk about anything that came up in their background check. But now this latest link, the one with the 24-hour time limit, which was sent on a Friday after the semester ended at the start of a three-day weekend, that one linked directly to a Colorado Department of Corrections hiring form. I wasn't trying to work as a deputy. I was trying to work as a teacher. But they were making me jump through the same hoops correctional officers have to jump through to get hired. No one else in my group of teachers, by the way, half a dozen of us in total, received any of these forms beyond the first one which was generic and non-intrusive. It just asked basic questions like, have you ever been convicted of a crime? Do you live in the United States legally? I was the only one who they made dance for them. I had to promise I wouldn't do anything bad again. I had to explain how I had been therapized and earned a PhD. I even mentioned how excited I was to help inmates gain the tools they need to stay out once released. And they still needed more. Apparently, I had to qualify to be a deputy. So I got to work in good faith. And this shit was intense. I had to answer questions like, have you ever had a psychological diagnosis? Have you ever used a drug that was illegal? Please list all and when. What crimes have you committed in the past that you were never charged with? My good faith was rapidly wearing thin. Another hour of my life devoted to answering personal questions. But it was finished, 23 hours ahead of the deadline. I clicked send, and then I waited. A quick summary for those who have never read it. Michelle Alexander wrote The New Jim Crow about 11 years ago. A lot of people think the book is about the prison industrial complex, how it uses slave labor and privatization to line the pockets of investors, allowing them to effectively profit off the misery of others. And that's true. But the new Jim Crow that she talks about with that term has to do with what happens after prison. It's the stigma, usually supported by society at large, that allows people to fire us before they even consider us for a job or to ask us whether or not we stole a stereo 20 years ago because that might impact our ability to perform the job today. The new Jim Crow is just a way for people to treat convicted felons like less than everybody else, with the full blessing of the state, the church, and about a million other powerful groups. It disproportionately affects black folks because in the United States, we arrest and convict black folks at much higher rates than white folks. Even though the research shows over and over that black people don't commit crimes at rates any higher than white people. Policies like the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 and 1988, that famous law that made 5 grams of crack cocaine require a mandatory prison sentence of 5 years, the same mandatory prison sentence for 500 grams of powder cocaine, which is the same drug, they made it pretty obvious to anyone who wasn't plugging their ears that this policy could and would be used to disproportionately affect black communities. That law didn't end with five-year sentences, and my cocaine users who are listening know that anyone who's bought five grams at once probably bought 15 grams at once, a half ounce with the baggie. 
The law says it's five mandatory years per five grams, which means that half ounce purchased to save a few hundred bucks will get you 15 years minimum if it's crack, a drug that, again, is no different from powder cocaine aside from its ability to be heated up without burning up. It can be inhaled before it's vaporized. The 100 to 1 sentencing law wasn't racist on its face, but it was used in a way that's impossible to call anything else. 80% of those sentenced under these jacked up Reagan era laws were black. Even though, again, black folks don't use or sell drugs, including cocaine, it rates any higher than white folks. If you can't see the racism in the war on drugs, you're trying hard to not see it. Michelle Alexander's book is still worth a read. And even though I'm not a person of color, so my experience is quite a bit different than a lot of the people Michelle is talking about, we do have one thing in common. The felon label sticks with us long after we leave prison, even if we make it through parole and remain crime-free. By updating the system to one that included people like me, white poor people, the United States managed to provide ourselves the illusion that we were post-race, even though the drug war is clearly still being used to attack and lock up black communities at much higher rates than white communities, just like it always has been. The DOC, the Department of Corrections. I can promise you they are not trying to correct anything. That program I was trying to get approved to teach inmates with I've been trying to volunteer for it for 10 years, and on three previous occasions, I've been denied. But not because of my felonies. In all three of those cases, they claimed I wasn't honest on my application, even though I added the customary extra paperwork every time. And I even dug through my old prison paperwork from 20 years ago in an effort to get it right. But after making me dance and perform, after making me dig through the past and pick at the scars, after making me fall prostrate and kiss the ring, after making me beg for forgiveness and promise not to do it again, after all of that, they denied me anyway. And that's why I stopped after three times. It was emotionally exhausting to fill out the application, but it was humiliating to get the denial and infuriating to be called a liar instead of just told the truth, that they don't want people like me working jobs like that. But this time was different. Now I had a PhD and more than half a decade of experience teaching actual college students. Certainly they wouldn't deny me for the pay teaching position, especially since the money wasn't even coming from the DOC, but from a local university and private donors who were covering the program costs. The whole Department of Corrections officer application was weird, sure, but maybe that was just yet another hoop they wanted me to jump through. I was trying to be optimistic. It only took four days for them to respond. Denied. This time it was for having felonies. You know, the crimes I told them about every time, the crimes which didn't result in my denial previously as a volunteer, the crimes which I had been open about since before filling out the first application, which I listed on every application ever submitted. And this familiar sticky rage showed up. Not so much aimed at the policy, but at the ability of them to get me to yet again jump through hoops, to dance for them, to get my hopes up. They knew all along they would ultimately end up saying no, they just hadn't decided how they would do it. The truth is they don't want people like me coming around. I might be a bad influence on the prisoners. Much like the law degree pipe dream from years ago, I thought it might be helpful to let prisoners see someone who's been there and jump through the hoops to succeed post-release. I was convinced when I was locked up that such a thing could never happen. We were reminded in a pre-release class that three out of four of us would be back in a year. Felons don't get PhDs or teaching positions. Why waste your time? I was going to show them a different narrative. 
Now I understand why the prison told us that as we were getting ready to hit the streets. Their jobs depend on us coming back as often as they can make that happen. What interest do private prison investors, correctional officer unions, slave labor contractors, and food service contractors have in helping people stay free once they're released? It's bad for business. The new Jim Crow as a system exchanges the permanent incarceration and oppression of anyone convicted of a crime, a group composed disproportionately of black men, for the well-being of full-time employees, investors, and contractors who make their living off the prison system. It isn't hard to spot, but only if you're looking. And in the United States, we're taught from a young age not to look, and for goodness sake, not to talk about it if you do happen to catch a glimpse. So no more prison application for me. They can keep that shit. Message received. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce.